it's not enough to just hand over tools to people that aren't capable of implementing them. Now that people are kind of opening their eyes and waking up to the fact that everything is involved in systemic injustice. And once we start acknowledging that, then more meaningful change could happen. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the theatrical entertainment industry. Here, joined by this week, our co-hosts, Rebecca Polly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, chief analyst at Box Office Pro. This week, we have a couple of news items to catch up on. And then in our main interview segment, we will be speaking with the artist and consultant Sadia Pineda Hamid, who wrote the Dismantling Structural Inequality in Your Cinema Toolkit for the BFI, a very interesting uh, DEI uh, toolkit for cinemas looking to have those conversations internally about how to address those diversity, equity, and inclusivity questions that a lot of businesses are facing today. But before we get to our main segment interview, Rebecca, Sean, how are you guys doing? I guess I expected there to be more changes in the last week than we've seen. I I feel like after the bombshell that was last week with the back-to-back news of Regal reopening, their Warner Brothers deal, and, and then Disney's decision on, on Black Widow and Luca. This this feels relatively low-key by comparison. It's going to be a nice, chill episode, guys. Yeah, thankfully, we, uh, we're recording this and so far haven't received any major release updates that we did last Tuesday. So knock on wood, the rest of the day will will play out a little bit differently than last Tuesday. It was uh, certainly a stressful second half of the week last week in exhibition with the bombshell news that Disney would be moving Black Widow to July, making it a day and date PVOD release along with uh, their title Cruella, which stayed on that May 28th date but unfortunately moving Pixar's Luca exclusively to Disney Plus for subscribers. We're still waiting for the uh, ripple effects of that decision. But in the meantime, the box office is slowly showing promising signs of recovery here in the United States and around the world. Sean, can you walk us through that weekend uh, that we just saw with Universal's Nobody opening at number one? Yeah, so on the domestic side, we're still a little bit behind the game uh, compared to some other countries out there that we'll get to, but nobody did show some strong results this weekend and ended up out uh, opening similar uh, action movies aimed at men of uh, a certain age, like Unhinged and the Marksman and the Little Things. And, (laughs) you know, that's that's a step forward that opened to 6.8 million. So we kind of hit that or we went past that range of four to five million dollar openings. And a lot of that is in thanks to Los Angeles and New York being open now, which were not for any of those movies. And it has positive word of mouth uh, on top of that. So it should... It should hang around for the next, you know, few months. It will have some competition coming into the market, but uh, without really much else out there, it's it's another positive step forward. And it's from Universal, a studio that a year ago we might not have thought about talking about it this way, but it's been one of the major studios to stick with putting films into theaters exclusively for at least some period of time uh, during the pandemic. 
Well, it's certainly the golden age of dad cinema right now during the <laughs> COVID-19 pandemic. We've got we've got some middle-aged Russell Crowe action out there from last summer. A couple of these Liam Neeson uh, titles. I still haven't seen the one where he fights wolves. I think he gets into a fist fight with wolves. What that's is that Liam Neeson one? That's, that's the gray. The gray. That's, that's a good one. I, I liked that one. That was good. Yeah, I, I still have to tune into that one. But of course, if we're into um, fighting with beasts... We have to bring up the great overseas debut of Godzilla versus Kong that had its international rollout this last weekend. Some things to talk about here. Sean, let's start with the numbers. What did we find with that title coming out? And I believe, was it 40 markets? Close to 40 markets and around 53,000 screens, which still not quite to pre-pandemic numbers. And a big share of those were in China, of course. Uh, but overall, the film opened to 123 million from its current markets, it was number one in every market, which was to be expected. Uh, China accounted for over half of that with 69 million, uh, like I said, from over 38,000 screens this weekend. And even with capacity restrictions, that's that's an impressive figure. It, it's, it's tracking almost double that of the Godzilla opening, which was seven years ago. So not quite of as, as strong as a comparison given that market's growth. But uh, still over Godzilla King of the Monsters 66 million opening just a couple of years ago. And notably, during the pandemic, it is now the top opening Hollywood release from either 2020 or 2021, topping Tenet, which was around 53 million. So all in all, a lot of good uh, results coming out of China and hopefully... A uh, an indicator of what's going to happen, at least on probably a smaller level, but uh, what we'll see here in North America when it opens this week. Now, Sean, we've uh, kind of speculated because uh, speculation is kind of all you can do at this point, but there is some data to back it up that when people go back to the movies for the first time, they are going to potentially want to opt for that premium experience, whether it's something like IMAX, another form of PLF, immersive seating, what have you. Uh, do we have any data to support that with Godzilla vs. Kong's international rollout? We do. This was actually the biggest IMAX weekend for any Hollywood film since the last Star Wars movie in December of 2019. So we're even going back pre-pandemic at this point, looking at comparisons. And that I, I think that's really a, a global narrative. That's not just something that's being driven by China uh, or, or any other international markets. That is absolutely applying here in the States right now as well, because we're seeing private watch parties sell really well. And some of those are in premium formats like IMAX and Dolby and others. So, and I think that will continue to, to be the case for, for months to come. It's, it's really, it's part of the normal of going to movies right now. And as part of the ramp up back into bigger releases. And it's, I think it's, it's a positive option, I think for audiences to have, because for anybody who maybe is a little bit more cautious or skeptic, it gets them back in the theater, but on their own terms and in their own comfort level. And that will you know, eventually lead to some more normalcy later in the year, I think. I have my IMAX ticket booked for Godzilla vs. Kong, though sadly I will have to share the screening with other people. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> now, Rebecca, you're a big fan of uh, Godzilla specifically, and it's fair to say kaiju in general. And you had a chance to speak with Godzilla vs. Kong director Adam Wingard in an interview on our website, boxofficepro.com. What were some of the highlights from both watching the film early and your conversation with the director? Well, uh, my big my big scoop, you know, we don't we don't tend to get a lot of scoops here at Box Office. That's for the, you know, comic book website type thing. But I think I got what is for Box Office a pretty good scoop 
which is uh, when Adam Wingard, you know, we spoke about actually the experience of him seeing the film on PLF during the process of, of making the film. And he, he goes in there and he's like, God, I got to decide where I want to sit in this in this IMAX screening room. Hey, where does Christopher Nolan sit when he when he screens a movie on IMAX? So apparently, uh, apparently Christopher Nolan sits uh, third row center. That was a little uh, too far forward for Adam Wingard. So he opted for fifth row center and, and he said he thought he was skeptical, but that it was it was a perfect amount of your vision being just filled with the screen, but without too much craziness going on around the periphery that it, that it does feel immersive. So, I mean, we, we talked about some other stuff. We talked about, um, you know, balancing the monster fighting and the human element, you know, pacing and, and some of the Godzilla films that he likes. But yeah, really finding out where Chris Nolan likes to sit when he goes to see an IMAX movie is is my number one takeaway. I'm gonna I'm gonna try those those are yeah, I'm gonna try those three, four, five rows now. I'm gonna give it a shot. <laughs> Uh, now, looking at that uh, release calendar that we have following the announcements from Disney last week, and as vaccines make progress here in the U.S., of course, I say that tentatively, knowing that COVID-19 cases are also in the rise here in the United States. Uh, Sean, have we seen any significant scheduling changes now that we've got May open and that we've seen a little bit of crowding in that September corridor? Yeah, I think as we kind of alluded to when we started recording today, we we're, we've been bracing for this big domino effect of of major tent poles shifting around after Disney because that's what's happened typically during the pandemic so far. That hasn't happened so far in the past week, but I think we should uh, definitely recognize studios like Lionsgate and United Artists, which are which are taking advantage of that May availability now with Guy Ritchie and Jason Statham's next film taking Black Widow's former date, Wrath of Man on May 7th, and then Spiral, the uh, spinoff slash sequel uh, reimagining, however we're branding that, of Saw uh, with Chris Rock and Sam Jackson actually moving up a week to May 14th. And then we've seen other release date shifts here and there, but uh, nothing, nothing too significant. Honestly, the biggest title that's had any release date news is a film that wasn't even dated, and it's now set for July of next year, and that's Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam from the DC Comics and Warner Brothers. So... It's a positive sign all around, and we're seeing some films also like the hitman's bodyguard's wife moving from August to June. Uh, so another example of a, a film that's actually moving up instead of moving down the calendar. And I know we've also got a, a horror title that stuck out for you, Rebecca, Searchlight Pictures uh, dating The Night House from director David Bruckner to July 16th. What was it about that title that, that caught your eye? Well, uh, that and Godzilla versus Kong are both uh, both Rebecca Hall films. I'm a big fan, not just because we share a name, though Rebecca's do have to stick together. We get called Rachel all the time, and it's annoying. But I do think she's uh, she's one of our greatest living actresses. She's totally underrated, and I always like a spooky haunted house movie. And then, uh, you know, just speaking of general genre films, which I'm a big fan of, uh, Sean, now we have two kind of cerebral, heady sci-fi films to look forward to uh, coming up. Right. Those were uh, two of the other date changes that were very minor compared to some others, just one week shifts here and there. But Universal and Amblin Entertainment's BIOS, which will star Tom Hanks, shifted from August 3rd to August 20th. And we also saw Warner Brothers move Reminiscence from September 3rd to August 27th. Uh, that film starring Hugh Jackman and written and directed by Lisa Joy 
of Westworld fame. So a couple of sci-fi films with, uh, you know, probably some crossover audience, but opening one week away from each other and really moving in response to Disney's shifts because that now gives those titles uh, a little bit more proximity to Labor Day weekend, which is when a Marvel film will open. Uh, so we, we really see that that back end of summer packing up very quickly. And at this point, the start of fall, which really end up might end up being the second half of summer uh, for all intents and purposes. One, two punch of Tom Hanks and Hugh Jackman at the box office. You love to see it. <laughs> Just, Who doesn't love both I'm of okay those with guys? That. I am Charming okay with leading that. men to bring people back to the movies. And thanks again, Rebecca and Sean, for those insights on the latest headlines from the World of Exhibition. You can read our latest coverage and analysis on the movie theater industry on boxofficepro.com. Now on to our feature segment. We've got our interview here with the artist and consultant Sadia Pineda Hamid speaking about the dismantling structural inequality in your cinema toolkit that she put together for the BFI. But before we get started on today's discussion, a word from our sponsors, QSC. QSC announces the expansion of the QSIS ecosystem for audio, video, and control with the new cost-effective Core Nano and Core 8 Flex processors. Far beyond a conventional cinema processor, QSIS is a complete ecosystem that allows you to control and monitor audio and video content delivery just about anywhere throughout the cinema complex. Visit qsc.com forward slash podcast for more information. That is qsc.com forward slash podcast. Sadia, thanks so much for joining us. I, I really loved the diversity and inclusion toolkit, and I really encourage uh, our listeners to read it. There will be a link to it in the description. Uh, but can you just give us some background on, on your background working in this uh, you know, diversity and inclusion space in the cinema industry and how you came to write this document for the BFI? Yeah, so I'm an artist and I work with um, film and visual mediums and in Wales and in Cardiff. So as an artist, I got to know a lot of different organizations, including in the cinema world and theater and also the visual arts. And I also happen to be kind of interested in activism. I'm not sure I'd call myself an activist. I suppose when I see something that's not quite right in an institution, I'm a bit outspoken and I mention it to someone I know who works there. And in a way, particularly um, post the resurgence of Black Lives Matter last year, um, a lot of artists of color have just fallen into um, diversity and consultancy work just because we know what we want. And um, also if the sector isn't really paying our bills as artists and filmmakers, um, at least we can get something from telling them how they could start paying us better. So um, <laughs> that's how I kind of fell into consultancy is just through kind of wanting to see some change. And Film Hub Wales, which is a kind of local sector of the BFI, yeah, reached out to me asking me if I'd want to develop this toolkit with them. So tell us a bit about the toolkit, because uh, obviously it, when we talk about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's there's two ways that I think it, it might be approached here among cinemas in, in the United States, especially. The first way is we saw a lot of brands go out on social media platforms, express this their support, and then have some sort of vague addressing of, oh, and we're going to look at things institutionally. And the second side of that equation is that this can be actually a little bit intimidating, especially for uh, cinemas that aren't large corporate chains, that aren't large circuits. 
it, it can be a little bit daunting. How do you start these conversations? How do we approach this in the right tone? Could you tell us of your approach in putting this together? Yeah, so I was commissioned to do it about two years ago. And at first it was, do you want to make a toolkit asking people to treat people of color better in cinemas? And I thought, yes, there are enough strategies and tools to do that, make it fairly easy. And then the toolkit got postponed, mostly my fault for kind of being too busy. And I only really started thinking about it again with um, Tucky and Hannah from Film Hub Wales, uh, again, around the time of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And we realized that it's not enough to just hand over tools to people that aren't capable of implementing them. And actually, now that people are kind of opening their eyes and waking up to the fact that everything is kind of involved in systemic injustice and the fact that a kind of maybe an Asian person doesn't feel welcome in your cinema or an African person doesn't feel welcome with what you're screening, that's all tied into a more systemic thing. And once we start acknowledging that, then more meaningful change could happen. So we rewrote our proposal for this toolkit and it went from being, here are some tips on how to be more welcoming to this will be the last toolkit you'll ever need, hopefully, uh, <laughs> as a cinema. I really did enjoy that about, about the toolkit, that you did not approach it from a perspective of here are 10 easy things your cinema can do to <laughs> break free of systemic racism. Like that's, that's, it's, it's, it's a deeper problem than that. And, and one that takes a lot of, of soul searching, I think. And so your toolkit, obviously your experience and, it, and it's written for cinemas in the UK, you know, reading it, there was a lot of input from community cinemas, from, uh, you know, smaller groups, looking at places in the UK and in the US or, or really around the world where you have these bigger chains, these bigger groups, where an individual GM or an individual person who might see something and say, hey, I think we can change this. I think we can do this better. But they don't necessarily have like a contact at the C-suite. What can individual people do in these larger chains to affect change or start to affect change or start to have those conversations going on? Yeah, it's an interesting one. With Writing the toolkit, I did have in mind the different people that would be reading it because um, I want all the CEOs and directors to be reading it, but most likely it's going to be a engagement officer or even maybe a an engagement assistant that's like one of the most underpaid people in their organization. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're usually tasked with things like this. Or it might, while I want to reach the kind of big corporations, it's probably going to be read by a small grassroots cinema that just wants to do their best. So I wanted to keep in mind how to approach all those different audiences. My kind of strategy with speaking to all people at once is to let people feel empowered and capable in what position they're in. Um, so in the toolkit, I kind of posture that if you're an assistant or an intern or underpaid, gain a sort of solidarity with other people in your um, workplace who feel the same, but actually aren't as much of a risk at losing their job if they bring up something as crazy as, hey, let's talk about systemic racism. <laughs> and then to a director, I kind of posed the idea that it's your responsibility as someone who's using public funding or is working in an organization whose remit is to serve all people to take this more seriously 
than someone else. And it's actually more of a responsibility of yours. So it's kind of hard to talk to both the grassroots cinema and the film corporation who's got a lot of money invested in it as a sector. But I think the idea is if we think about everything systemically, um, everyone has a part to play, whether that's small or large. And in that sense, I don't know, it sounds cheesy, but maybe we could start working together. <laughs> and I think I think that's one of the, the key points here, right? Uh, because unfortunately, because these conversations tend to to carry so it's such an emotional and personal weight, sometimes uh, we can perceive them as accusatory as opposed to to look at them as being constructive, as look at as saying, hey, let's see what the situation is from different groups that that might be coming to my cinema, that might be employed at my cinema, and how can I best access these perspectives that I don't personally have? And I I think that's one of the the strengths of the document you have in combining uh, a sort of comprehensive uh, approach, if not strategy, to starting a discussion. Mm. Yeah, and something that we've we've spoken a lot about on the podcast that's always been important for this industry, which is to say communication that's not just here's a trailer for the new Marvel movie, but rather an open dialogue between uh, a movie theater and the community that they serve and and indeed that they take part in. At the at the center of the Venn diagram of your experience of writing this toolkit and then having experience in marketing. Uh, how important is it for cinemas when they're reaching out to audiences, different minority groups in in their communities, to kind of segment that and make sure their outreach is both general and targeted to specific segments of their community? Yeah. So one thing that I really stress in the toolkit is the difference between marketing and outreach, where marketing mm-hmm. is how you advertise and gain profit <laughs> and reach enough people to buy tickets. And outreach is completely separate from that. It's about relationship building, showing the community that you're situated in, why you deserve to take up space there because you're offering them the service. The importance of outreach is that by building a friendship, it opens a much more honest flow of communication where it's harder to offend someone because they're involved in the conversation. They get a say in it. They get a say in what language is used about them. They get a say in what their name is put on um, as a community partner. They get a say in programming. They get a say in um, how they're represented. And that's more closer to a friendship than a corporate partnership to gain tick boxes of how many communities you've worked with. And we we apply that in so many other aspects of our life and in other sectors. But in the film industry, it's almost um, we've I guess because we use the word audience a lot. (laughs) Um, We really love to think of people in categories. And that's um, not great because an audience is a future programmer. An audience member is a future filmmaker. They're not just consumers of a product. And when we start to look at that, we realize how important it is for those people to feel adequately and honestly represented and provided with opportunities to train and join the industry because they're not passive. So now in the U.S., uh, many theaters are opening back up after a period of having been closed for months. Um, I know in the U.K., you're still looking at mid-May tentatively. Within this period of shutdown, you know, we've seen a lot of cinemas kind of step back and reassess how they work, reassess how they operate and how they're organized. What can cinemas do during this transitional period 
where they maybe have a time to think about how they can reinvent themselves to be more diverse and to be more inclusive, maybe even down to the way that their organization is structured. This has offered a really interesting opportunity to mobilize budgets. Um, What would normally go to the maintenance of space if you're lucky enough to get some sort of governmental support with things like that? It's like you've freed up a lot of um, budget to from internally pay your staff better if they're not getting paid well enough. But um, in terms of programming, you've got all this money to commission freelancers and um, smaller filmmakers to respond to films. You've got money to kind of put into the industry by funding artists to create or research. Um, You can fund academics to kind of help educate people on histories of cinema. You've got money to put back into the communities that we kind of sometimes tokenize as cinemas um, to kind of give back to them and say, we're not just using you as an audience. You've got resources to offer training if people want to become filmmakers and want to find out how to get involved or if they want to become programmers and curators. There's all of these resources that we've got to kind of and we've got we've got all of these resources and we've got all of this time and space to imagine how we'd like cinema and film to be I guess the the issue is always I'll have to ask my manager and then I'll have to ask my boss and then I'll have to ask the board of trustees but actually (laughs) we can imagine further than that and we can actually start making some really positive and active decisions now that's great. I mean, even even in this this period now, looking at these community groups, you know, what you spoke to about creating a real relationship and a friendship and not just some kind of transactional partnership, like look to these groups and, and, and see, do they need space to host an event? Do they need, you know, assistance to do something that they need to do? And that's something that we see some cinemas do, but I think it's, I mean, God, if, if there's one thing cinemas have, it's a lot of space. And right now as we're reallocating and reimagining what the cinema experience is like, what your private rentals business is like, uh, we, we've seen that become a lifeline for a lot of exhibitors in not really marketing content, but going out and uh, letting people know that, hey, we've got this cinema space right here. And these private rentals can be something for you. How you have that conversation changes. I think if we look at the U.S. market, for example, where one out of every four tickets sold is to a Latin American or Hispanic person, I think there is a great interest, not only in investing time and money, as Sadia puts in, because it's the right thing to do, but there is also a financial reward if you make sure people feel included in your space. And I think, uh, especially with the private rentals, this might be a, a great step forward with the right strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's still an industry and we're still happy to be audiences and pay money for tickets <laughs> to see the latest blockbuster. We're not, you know, it's, there's also this fear of like falling into this trap where people of color or disabled people or queer people are just seen as like a special interest group when really we, we are like, the we make up the majority of the global cinema audience but what this really opens up is this idea that as we slowly open up the physical spaces how can we treat those audiences more equally um how can we not tokenize them in advertising now how can we create safe spaces how can we integrate um dementia screenings and relaxed screenings and screenings that allow children and talking and food back in because we've got 
a limited number of people can be in a large space, uh, we could do loads more screenings and really experiment with what people actually want. That's a key thing, right? I mean, sometimes this conversation of inclusivity gets politicized to a point where it can be part of a culture war about being politically correct, rather than just addressing, hey, how can we bring as many people into our space and have them feel as welcome and as comfortable as possible? This isn't the culture war. You know, this isn't uh, this isn't the conversation where there are sides to it. We are inclusivity is literally just that is trying to make people as welcome and comfortable as possible in your physical space. And I think it's in the best interest of any business and any industry to to adapt to that. In the toolkit, I talk a lot about personhood and how as much as this toolkit is aimed towards welcoming in people of color or disabled people or intersections between these it is actually more so about just treating people like people. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that involves asking them. I mean, I remember in the toolkit asking them what what terms they want to be uh, referred as, you know, asking them what kind of movies would you like to see to get involved in programming and if they're doing that work to pay them for their work. I mean, just really respecting people, which is not that, shouldn't be that controversial a thing. Yeah, absolutely. In the toolkit, I even talk about how... Um, well, th this whole idea of what to call people, what to call different groups of people um, is such an issue um, with people wanting to be politically correct. But I make a point in the toolkit to say that if you have a good enough relationship with that audience and you have a track record of welcoming them in your space and providing resources, that you don't need to even worry about what term you call them because they're just friends and collaborators and artists and they're not any type of demographic and how all these terms, even from like queer to the acronyms of LGBTQI, then no one chose to be called these things. Um, it's only through, through like lawmaking and when people finally get a chance to have an input into policies about themselves, we just have to accept some of these terms or use it to be able to speak to them. But no one chooses any of these terms. And it's just a bit, I don't know. I, I hate that the conversation always gets so focused on political correctness and should I be calling this person black or brown or not? And it's like, ugh, it's not, it's, the, like, it's just it's, like, it's, it's at a certain point it's splitting hairs. Like, let's just get to yeah. the actual conversation here. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah. it clouds, I think, actionable insights. It clouds uh, systemic processes to be implemented once we get caught down in the details, right? And I think that's one of the situations that unfortunately, um, we get a topic that should not be political. Inclusivity is not a political topic. And we tend to buy into uh, these narratives uh, that, that ultimately just work against us. Sadia, thanks so much uh, for, for joining us. Again, uh, you can find the link to the toolkit in the description of this podcast episode. Thank you so much. It's, it's been really great speaking to you. Thank you. And thank you again to our guest, Sadia Pineda Hamid, uh, for those insights. You can find that diversity, equity, and inclusivity toolkit for your cinema at inclusivecinema.org. Uh, a lot of interesting insights there. This week, the Box Office Podcast was sponsored by our partners at QSC. Uh, to find out more about their services, please visit qsc.com forward slash podcast to get all the details on their latest offerings. The Box Office Podcast is produced by myself and Rebecca Polly over at Box Office Pro in collaboration with our colleagues at the Box Office Company and the Box Office Studios. 
and our partners at Record Edit Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. And don't forget to tune in next week for our next episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>